country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. I'm your host Gemma Purdy from the Australia Indonesia Centre. The Sukarno dynasty is arguably Indonesia's first and certainly most successful political family. Able to count two presidents and the country's largest political party, PDIP, as its legacy so far. Sukarno himself was the nation's founding father and first president, and his daughter Megawati, its fifth and to date only female president, from 2001 to 2004. Today, Megawati continues to lead the family party, which has played a significant role in Indonesia's democratic consolidation. However, with the matriarch, Megawati, failing twice in her attempts to recapture the presidency, in 2014, the decision was made to put forward a proxy nominee for the party's presidential bid. As history tells us, their choice, Jokowi Dodo, proved a very good one. Six years later, with Jokowi in his second and final term, the issue of a successor is once more on the table, and with it, questions about the ability of the Sukarno dynasty to regenerate and hold on to its power. My guest today is Marcus Meitzner from the College of Asia and the Pacific at the ANU. Marcus has written extensively on the Sukarno dynasty and the PDIP. Hello and welcome back, Marcus. Thanks for joining us on Talking Indonesia. Hello, Gemma. Thanks for having me. Well, it's so great to have you back. Today, we want to talk about the Sukarno dynasty. And I wanted to talk with you about your writings on this, but to get up to speed to the current situation as we approach the regional elections coming up in December. But first of all, could you give us some background on the Sukarno dynasty, which you've called a persistent dynasty, but you also have flagged the continuing dangers for this dynasty around regeneration. What are the characteristics that have seen this family survive and at times thrive for now three generations in politics? So the Sukarno dynasty was founded by Sukarno in uh, 1927 when he was founding at the time the Indonesian National Party, the PNE, uh, which was one of the major parties that drove the Indonesian independence movement. Sukarno in particular was interested in setting up a party that was not tied to a particular ethnic group or religious group, and that has become the ideological profile of the Sukarno family and the party that is tied to it. So obviously Sukarno then in the 1930s, he was arrested by the colonial authorities, so he disappeared for a while from the scene. Uh, PNE, the party uh, of the Sukarno dynasty, was refounded in 1945. Sukarno then, of course, became president, so he was no longer the head of the party, but he remained its ideological patron. Megawati, his daughter, she became later on the head of the successor party to PNE, uh, which was PDI. So PDI was a party founded under the Sohata regime in 1973, which included PNE as one of its component, and Megawati became 
the chairperson of this new creation, the PDE, in 1993. And she has remained at the helm of that party, which then morphed into PDIP in 1999. So there is a continuity from the founding of PNE by Sukarno in 1927 to Megawati's taking over of the party in 1993, and now the grooming of her daughter Puan as the next generation of that dynasty. Now, the question why the Sukarno dynasty has been so persistent is largely due to the fact that it is ideologically consistent, which is very important for Indonesian voters. You know, this is especially crucial for dynasties that operate at the national level. For some local level dynasties, it might be enough to simply provide patronage networks to voters and so forth. But at the national level, some sort of ideological identification is very important for voters to stay loyal to that particular family. So for the Sukarno family, this particular dynasty stands for a nationalist understanding of Indonesia. It stands for the rejection of an Islamization of society and has uh, done so for many decades. So a dynasty in this particular case makes it easier for voters to find their ideological orientation represented in the party system. And that's why the Sukarno dynasty has remained relatively successful and enduring over time. Indeed, the most successful with two presidents, Megawati and Sukarno. So you mentioned Puan. She's not currently in the top job. Why has Megawati held on to that position of chairperson of the PDIP? Is she just holding the place for Puan and why wait? Megawati is very well aware of the lack of popularity on Puan's part. She has for many years observed that she lacks the kind of rootedness in the party as well as in the general electorate. Now her hope is that that will change over time, but so far that has not occurred. You know, if you look at opinion surveys about Puan's popularity in the broader electorate, that remains very low. She would not stand a chance at the moment if she were to run for president. So Megawati has decided to stay on. Nobody knows for how long, but she's clearly looking at the numbers. She's looking at how Puan's popularity is developing, and she will make a decision uh, later on. Now, Megawati herself uh, is now coming to an age where succession and the discussion about succession is very natural. But at the moment, it is very clear to her that her daughter is not ready yet for the party leadership. As you know, she also has a son, Fernanda Prabowo, who is in some form of competition with Puan over the succession. But Prananda is even more low profile than Puan is, and he doesn't even show up in any of the opinion surveys. So it seems to be that the succession is reserved for Puan but that she needs to prepare better for the kind of electoral role that eventually she will have to grow into. Yeah, and so she currently is in a role which has elevated her position nationally, is that not right? As Speaker of the House of Representatives in the current legislature, and how's she doing in that? And is that improving her popularity? 
She has been in several senior positions. Uh, she was a senior member of the cabinet in the first Jokowi administration. That didn't really help her much in terms of boosting her popularity. And at the moment, as Speaker of the House, that doesn't seem to make a big difference either. So she is not significantly more in the media than she used to be. Now she is still mostly in the media as Megawati's daughter. That's how she's normally introduced and described. So she struggles clearly uh, to leave a footprint and footprint especially with the electorate because her popularity ratings aren't moving at all. Right. So the shadow cast by her mother is significant, perhaps. So let's move on to what did take place prior to 2014 and the lead up to that election when it was clear that Megawati herself was not worth her standing again to run as the PDIP candidate after successive failures there. So what led to Megawati's decision to pick Joko Widodo as the presidential candidate for the party? You've described this as a proxy candidate. Why Jokowi and what do you think Megawati's expectations were of him? It's very easy. Uh, the one reason that led her to pick Jokowi were the polling numbers. Right? It was very clear that he was the front runner. It was very clear, on the other hand, that Megawati wouldn't be able to match those numbers. So at the end, there was simply no choice for her. It wasn't a choice that she uh, relished. It was something she had to be talked into. She had set up a team of advisors that had the task of looking at the polling numbers and over time then come up with a recommendation for her who to pick and who to nominate for the presidency. That team eventually came up with the recommendation to her to not run on her own and to give the nomination to Jokowi. That was not an easy thing for that team either because Megawati is very sensitive with these kinds of things. So some of the team members that were particularly strong in their recommendation to Megawati not to run and give the slot to Jokowi later found themselves marginalized from the party and from the inner circle of Megawati because they were a bit too enthusiastic about endorsing Jokowi. So people like Andy Vijayanto or Cornelis Lai, who recently died, all of them found themselves in the sort of wilderness later on because they had supported Jokowi's nomination too strongly. So uh, she had played with the idea, despite the fact that she had lost the elections in 2004 and in 2009, she had still played with the idea of running, but eventually she looked at the numbers and was convinced, but she wasn't terribly happy with it. Now, the expectation she had towards the Jokowi nomination was, and she expressed that very clearly during the campaign and then later on, that Jokowi would be the representative of the party and therefore the representative of her in the presidential elections, and that he would be in a line of subordination towards her later on in the presidency. So she packaged that in the term that Jokowi is an official of the party, a Pajabat Parte, right? That has been repeated over and over again that he was supposed to simply implement as president what the party and therefore Megawati was telling 
telling him to do. Now, that led to significant tensions very early on in the presidency of Jacobi, and it took a very long time for them to find a relationship that eventually worked for both. Indeed. So how is it working? Do you see that the tensions remain? The low point in that relationship was in 2015. There was the party congress at the time in Bali, in which she reprimanded him in front of everyone for not doing what she had expected him to do, and that was being an official of the party who receives orders from the PDIP leadership. That was extraordinary moment in Indonesian political history in which Megawati uh, reprimanded the sitting president who was you know, sitting in front of her and did not allow him to speak in response. Uh, this was then afterwards the trigger for a rearrangement of their relationship because there was a very negative press response and the population also didn't like the way Megawati treated Jokowi. They almost felt sorry for him. So that had a negative backlash for Megawati. She then later on realized that she needed to treat him differently and needed to treat him with more respect and recognize his authority as president. He also quite smartly broadened his coalition. Right? So initially he was very much dependent on PDIP. But starting from 2016, he brought in Golkar, he brought in Pan, he brought other political parties, and he turned his initial minority position in parliament into a supermajority by the end of his first term. That also led Megawati to reconsider the relationship. So now they have actually a pretty good working relationship in which Megawati acknowledges that Jokowi can make executive calls as president, but in which Jokowi, on the other hand, also respects the authority of Megawati as the head of PDIP. As we move towards the end of the Jokowi presidency, Megawati also, I think, is in this advantageous position that she has an institutional power base for the post-Jokowi period, while Jokowi actually doesn't. And we'll have to sort of get into this as well at some stage in our conversation, that Jokowi did not found his own party, that did not challenge Megawati for the leadership, and therefore he is without an institutional basis throughout his presidency. Whoever is nominated for the PDIP presidential slot in 2024 will still be holden to her. So I think she looks at 2024 and has concluded that she is actually in a very good position, while Jokowi will be struggling to build up a situation, build up a constellation in which he has a say about his successor. Yeah. Well, this brings me to this extraordinary moment in February this year, during one of her speeches, Megawati seemed to go off script somewhat and chastise her delegates and warn them in very stark terms against forcing their children to follow them into politics, which she described as annoying her. You would have seen it at the time. What was your reading of this from her? Who was she aiming these comments at? The meeting you're referring to, the meeting of 
potential candidates of the party for the regional elections. Now, the context was, and it's, as you indicated, it's an extraordinary statement because it shows the lack of awareness on her part that she is criticizing people in her party for something that she is doing herself. Right. So she mm -hmm. criticized members of the party, senior members of the party for pushing their children into political candidacies that they are not qualified for. Right. So that was that was the context. She seemed to realize afterwards that she had opened herself up towards criticism. And so then she responded to it. She said something to the extent of, well, you might think that I am pushing my own daughter as well into a political position, but I am not. My daughter is the Speaker of the House because she gained the largest number of votes in the elections and so forth, right? So yes. it's a very strange moment in which, again, she showed very little self-criticism towards dynastic practices, blaming others for something she has been not only benefiting from as the daughter of Sukarno, but also now actively pursuing with her own daughter. And there you can see the narrative, how she justifies dynastic structure building in the party. Uh, she hates the term dynasty. Uh, whenever you bring that up to her, she would leave the room. She doesn't even want to engage the question. So the way she packages it is that Puan has from a very young age onwards, she has gone through the various political positions Again, I mentioned it earlier, she was a minister in the cabinet prior to that. She was a senior member of the PDIP leadership. She was the head of the caucus in parliament and so forth. So she portrays Puan as somebody who has gone through an apprenticeship of politics and now deserves everything that's coming to mm -hmm. her. There are within the party clearly sort of junior leaders who have pushed their own children to go into office. Uh, that's very clear. And it's not only happening within PDRP, it's happening within other parties as well, but that she would go out of her way and criticize them while uh, she is clearly preparing her daughter for the succession is extraordinary. And again, shows something that is widespread in political parties, not only only in Indonesia, but sort of at these top echelons of political leadership, the lack of self-reflection, right? So that you have a, a circle of sycophants around you who tell you, you know, things that you want to hear. And this whole problem of not being able to reflect on the problem of dynastic succession and apply that to her own case uh, says a lot generally about the way politicians work. Mm -hmm. And so it's very interesting, too, in the context of what we now know has taken place with regards to Jokowi's own son, Gibran. Twelve months ago, he was expressing his interest in running for office, in particular running for his father's old seat as mayor of Solo. Can you run us through what took place there in the lead up to Gibran eventually securing that candidacy for the PDIP ticket? Wasn't straightforward, was it? And Megawati was heavily involved. Yeah, it wasn't straightforward. And we still don't know what the actual trigger was. So there are two conflicting narratives here. The uh, narrative that Jacoby is pushing is that he had no role in that decision and that Gibran 
decided now to leave business, which he has been engaged in in the last few years, and devote himself to public service, right? So he has detached himself from that decision. The second and probably more plausible narrative is that, in fact, that this was something Jokowi has been pushing, that this was not something Gibran at this stage has particularly been interested in, but has been convinced that in order to defend the family's interests into the future, that that is something that needs to be done. And with that, it would be very similar to what happened in the family of uh, Yudhiyonov, the predecessor of Jokowi, where something very similar occurred, where Agus, his oldest son, had to leave the military, which he was very happy in, uh, because Yudhoyono and his wife, Ani, convinced him that he needed to leave active military service in order to build up the Yudhoyono dynasty. So he was pulled out of a very promising military career to run in the Jakarta elections in 2017. So very striking similarities here. Presidents, and in the case of Yudhoyono, former presidents who want to build up a dynasty and have to convince their children to leave quite lucrative alternative careers to go into, into politics. Now, in the case of Gibran, that happened in the middle of 2019, came out of the blue, and the party in Solo, the PDIP branch in Solo, was heavily opposed to it. The incumbent mayor in Solo as well was heavily opposed to it, and they had appealed to Megawati to not endorse Gibran as PDIP's candidate in solo. At the end of the day, however, Mega had to think about, do I want to pick a fight with the incumbent president? Right? It would have clearly been a humiliation of Jokowi if Megawati had decided not to endorse him because the nomination was now public. Gibran had publicly stated that he wanted to run and a sort of rebuffing of the president's son by Megawati would not have been possible without major political implications. So there was a lot of dissatisfaction within the party, presumably also on Megawati's part, who waited a long time with this final endorsement. But eventually, as was predictable from the onset, Gibran was given the nomination. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, he was kind of shopping around two other parties, or it was reported that he was possibly shopping around. So your observation that Jokowi is very much supporting or encouraging or even pushing his son towards a political career, is there any more that you can tell us about Jokowi himself and his visions or his hopes for his family and the legacy of his family in politics? It's very hard to sort of read Jokowi on many of his strategic things he's doing or not doing, right? So one of the really sort of strange things, if he's indeed planning a longer term legacy and a more sort of institutional legacy over time, is his reluctance to build up his own party and to actually make a go for the PDIP leadership, which again, leaves him without an institutional base for the build-up of a dynasty that would 
you know, go beyond his own his own presidency. So I think we need to be aware that presidents, and we talk about Yudhiyono as well, you know, they do not always have very good plans. They sometimes are just as clueless when it comes to these kinds of things as very ordinary political players. I have never personally understood, and I've asked him this in 2014, why he would not form his own party. He said it would be too difficult that party consisting of his volunteers would be very, very hard to manage, to keep together as one unit. So it sounded like he was just not interested in taking up the organizational challenge to keep a party together. Now, that's different from Yudhoyono, who understood that in order to have an institutional base beyond his presidency, he needed a party. And that's how the dynasty of the Yudhoyono family is now being institutionalized. Agus was now put in charge of the party just recently after Yudhoyono withdrew from the political state. So that dynastic institution building is actually working. In the Jacobi case, it's very hard to see how he actually would institutionalize a dynasty beyond his presidency. He seems to think that parties don't really matter, but the Megawati case actually shows that the parties do matter. They allow people, even if they're unpopular, to remain influential in political decision-making in Indonesia. So, So I can't shed a lot more light on what exactly Jokowi is thinking, other than that it's very clear that he is very interested in pushing the candidacy of Gibran, despite of what he's saying in public. It's very clear there have been people in his inner circle. They have been given the task of preparing Gibran. Uh, There's a lot of activity around Gibran. People are helping him with polling numbers and so forth. And that's all going back to the president's initiative. But does he have a plan that goes beyond Gibran winning the mayorship? I don't know. And it does not become clear from what he's doing at this point. Very interesting. And we should note that it's not just Gibran who is in the picture here, but also Jokowi's son-in-law, his daughter's husband, Bobby Nasution, is running for the mayor of, is it the mayor or the vice mayor? I'm not sure of made. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and, uh, and numerous other kind of connected people into that family. But um, can we just say for a moment, can you give us any insight into Gibran as a political animal? How would you make an assessment of him at this early stage? He's running unopposed, we should say. So he is the only candidate put forward by a party, but there's an independent pair. But in any case, what do we know about Gibran? This is relating to what I said earlier, there didn't seem to be a whole lot of enthusiasm on his part for this candidacy initially. uh, He's sort of a personality that is much more aloof than Jacobi, somebody who doesn't have the political charisma that his father has, somebody who has to really struggle to engage with people who doesn't have sort of this natural connection to ordinary citizens on the ground. So 
it seemed like a very odd choice in terms of the personality. Now, obviously, that might change over time. Uh, Jacoby has told some of his closest people in the inner circle to give him some training to how to look better on camera, how to get rid of some weird mannerisms that didn't look good in public and so forth. So it's hard, and we saw that at the very beginning of the Agus Yudoyono candidacy in Jakarta as well, where there was sort of an inbuilt reluctance to actually run and to find a niche in this political system for themselves. And clearly Gibran is still struggling with that. He's assured of victory. There's no doubt about that, whether there will be a counter candidate from an independent peer or not. It is very clear that he will win in a landslide, probably by 80-90%. And so that reduces a little bit the pressure on him to actually perform better and to perform quickly, right? So it's like market mechanisms in business as well. If you don't have competition, there's very little reason for you to come better. If he actually had to engage in a real political fight like Agus Vidaliono did in Jakarta in 2017, the outcome would probably be a bit different. But he is now assured of victory and therefore yeah, we might not see much of an improvement in the next few years. Okay, so that's Gibran. We will watch that space. I mean, he's already had to answer the questions constantly coming from the media about the fact that his father's president and the advantages that he gets from that. And yet, like many, many of these other candidates coming through with family connections, they're very dismissive of that connection having any influence whatsoever. And as you say, from Megawati's own position, there's just an incredible lack of insight into how that reads among the electorate. You may have seen that there was a survey done by Compass, um, I think in August, asking people, did they like the idea of family or political leaders running for Pilkada in the regional elections? And if they would like regulations, therefore limiting that. And 60% agreed that they did not like the idea of families running for Pilkada and that they would like some kind of limitations. How do you read those kinds of results up against what we're seeing playing out in Indonesian politics right now, particularly in the in the regional elections, where more and more of the candidates are in fact coming from these political families? Yeah, I'm always a bit skeptical in polls when questions are asked to the electorate in a sort of abstract way. The reality only comes through in the electoral choices. If people are confronted with the choice of a dynastic versus a non-dynastic candidate, that's when they have to make up their mind. So a lot of people who would in an abstract manner say that they dislike dynasties are still voting for them if they're confronted with the choice, right? So I'm more interested in the percentage of people that do get elected than the philosophical question of whether they endorse or reject dynasties in general. And we, you know, we have the same in America as well. You know, there's all of these political families, whether it's the Bushes, whether it's the Clintons and so forth. So uh, there is a similar problem there, and it is about whether people are actively voting for them or not. In terms of the potential measures that could be put in place, that's a very difficult subject. And in fact, there had been limitations on dynastic candidacy some years ago, but that was overturned in the courts, right? And it's very hard indeed 
if you issue a law, a regulation that exclude people from nominating themselves for political office based on their blood relations with another person, you step into very difficult territory. It's the same problem in the Philippines. They have been working on anti-dynastic legislation for decades, and it's very hard to push through because very obviously there are questions of limiting people's political rights based simply on their family relations, right? So I'm very skeptical that this will ever happen in Indonesia because the courts have already ruled on it. And again, once you test that against the right of somebody to run for office, regardless of, you know, sexual regardless of uh, gender, regardless of ethnic race, if you then include a category that says you can't run for office if you're the cousin of somebody else, very hard to argue legally. So if there are measures against that, they would have to come through a more transparent political system. They would have to introduce political frameworks that make it harder for families to rule, particularly in small districts and cities and provinces and so forth. Often the dynasties there are based on the ability to reproduce a patronage network through the next generation. That's what you would have to cut in order to undermine the ability of dynasties to function. Right? So if you were to be able to get into those patronage networks, you know, this is something at Espinal and Ward Berenshaw have written about extensively, these clientelistic networks that feed off an untransparent financing system of politics and so forth. If you were able to cut through that, that would do much more against dynasties than having a clause in the electoral law that would surely be overturned by the courts. In the article that you wrote a few years ago about the Sakano dynasty, you also make a note that not all dynasties are bad, I guess, in shorthand, but you can correct me, but that some dynasties, and including the Sakano dynasty, have played a role in democratic consolidation. But where would you put your argument today in the context that we've just been speaking about, about the prevalence of political dynasties more and more in Indonesian politics. Is it a function of a consolidation of that democracy or a threat to it? So I would come back to what I said earlier. So there's a big difference between national level dynasties and local level dynasties, right? So national level dynasties over time can only survive if they have a particular ideological identity that they can sell to people and that attracts voters, right? So there, a dynasty actually can make it easier for a voter to identify with a particular party and the dynastic leaders of that party because they want to subscribe to that particular worldview. So in the Indonesian case, very clearly, Indonesians who are heavily opposed to Islamization, who are strongly in favor of a pluralistic structuring of Indonesia and the pluralistic interpretation of the Indonesian constitution, they are very likely to vote for PDIP because they see Megawati represents the spirit and the political ideology of Sukarno, who was exactly in that line of political thought, right? On the other hand, you know, if you look at the dynastic uh, tendencies, even in the family of Amin Rice, for instance, the former chairman of Muhammadiyah and then the chairman of PAN, 
there as well, you have a clearly ideological link between what this dynasty represents and what the voter wants. So again, the dynasty here helps to structure the electoral choices of voters. That's not really the case at the local level. Again, at the local level, dynasties are much less ideological and they are much more reliant on handing out goods, you know, practicing clientelism, distributing patronage to the voters. And if then voters see that they have received a lot of goods under the rule of one uh, district heads, for, for instance, for 10 years, then that district has, head has to retire because of the term limits, hands over the position to his or her son or daughter or wife, then electoral buy into that experience they had. They say, you know, if we want to continue to receive this patronage, we need to vote for the same family that provided it to us over the years. So that's a voting choice for dynasties that is clearly detrimental to democratic opening and democratic competitiveness. I don't see it in the, in the same way at the national level where you can't simply secure support for a dynasty through clientelism. It doesn't work. You would have to bind 200 million voters into a clientelistic network. That is impossible. So you must use an ideological message. And that ideological message, I do believe in some cases is useful for highlighting democratic choice. Right? We have this debate within Indonesian politics that ideology no longer matters. I have always thought that that was a premature assessment. This ideological cleavage in Indonesian politics between those who believe that Indonesia should be more Islamic in outlook and constitutional arrangements and those who want to maintain Indonesia as a pluralistic country, that cleavage remains very strong. And these dynastic lines that I just described, on the one hand, the Sukarno family, on the other hand, just as an example, the Amin Rice family, for instance, helps these voters to express their ideological preferences more easily. That doesn't mean that in the more practical side of politics, dynastic parties are in any way advantages, but they can have an advantage in highly ideological parties that bind themselves to a tradition as PDRP and Megawati uh, do to a tradition that was formed in the 1920s. Right, exactly. And the regional elections, as scholars have shown us, are much more susceptible to what you're saying, the, the identity politics coming through rather than that ideological basis. Okay, to finish up, to go back to where we began, I think, and ask you this question, which perhaps you've already answered, but I want to push you a little bit further on it. Um, in, in that paper that I was referring to, you asked a question which was still open because there was still some way to go in the Jokowi presidency. The question you asked was, has the Sakano dynasty weakened its position in Indonesian politics by its choice to elevate Jokowi as its proxy and as a potential challenge to it? How would you answer that now in 2020? No, it hasn't weakened. And this is largely due to Jokowi's actions or the lack thereof after becoming president, right? It would have been logical for Jokowi to do either of two things. First, he could have prepared himself to take over PDIP, right? If he had launched 
a strong challenge at a time when he was most popular. Uh, I think he could have had a chance. There's clearly dissatisfaction with Puan and PDRP. There's a sense that she will not be an appropriate replacement for her mother, that she will not have the electoral appeal that her mother at least in the late 1990s had, uh, and that therefore there was some appetite for somebody else to take over the party. And who is better placed for that than the president who was just voted into office? He has never pursued that option, right? He has never even thought about taking over PDIP to the joy, of course, of Megawati. So she never had to fight that battle with the second thing, as I mentioned earlier, for him would have been to launch his own party, right? He has never been a really a deeply engaged member of PDIP. He hardly shows up for any of the party events. He has never been a real party official. He could have easily left PDIP and found his own party, but he, he chose not to do so. And as a result of that, the Sukarno dynasty is currently unchallenged in its leadership of that segment, this ideological community that rejects Islamization and wants to defend the pluralist constitution of Indonesia. So for the reason of Jokowi's inactivity, almost by default, that political leadership has remained with Megawati. And she, I think, now has a good chance and probably a better chance than Jokowi himself of shaping the post-2024 landscape. And there's this big discussion about how would Jokowi now actually push a successor? Number one, I don't think he has one. It's also something we have found out about Jokowi. He's often very late in making these kinds of decisions, as we have seen with his botched choice of the vice president, right? He waited with that decision until the last minute, and then it blew up in his face because his coalition forced him to pick somebody else. Similarly, when it comes to the choice of a successor, he hasn't clearly made that choice, yet he doesn't know how to make that choice. And by the time he comes to making that choice, he actually doesn't have a political party to make that choice in any institutional way. Megawati has that institutional mechanism, right? So if we're talking about how presidential candidates are being nominated. If she's still alive by 2024, she will still be in charge of PDIP and she will play a role in nominating a strong presidential pair at the time. Whether Jacoby can actually do that, we don't know. You know. We don't know at this stage how presidential candidates will be nominated in 2024, but the way Megawati has maneuvered herself into this space at the moment, she has a bigger role to play than Jacoby, who again, by his own omission, does not have a vehicle for presidential nominations at this point. Your explanation is really interesting because I think there's a lot of media talk about Gibran and the other members of Jokowi's family and the potential for that family to be jockeying for greater powers. Marcus, thanks so much for your time today. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Gemma. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That was Marcus Meitzner from the Australian National University. Marcus's paper on the Sakano dynasty was published in Southeast Asia Research in 2016, and we'll add a link to it on our blog page. Talking Indonesia will return on the 22nd of October, hosted by Dirk Thompson. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode 
or find us via your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been Talking Indonesia. Thanks for listening and bye for now.